Well, good morning, and we continue our time of worship uh, by hearing particularly from, from God through his word. Uh, we've, we've heard him all morning so far as he's spoken through his word, and he continues to address us now in this time. And before we, we turn to his word here now, let's, let's take a moment and pray that God would bless this time, uh, that he would open our, not only our ears, but that he would open our hearts uh, to be receptive to this word, that he would do his work in us. Let's, let's pray. Dear God, we need your word. We are in desperate need to hear what you have to say to us. And we are thankful that you have spoken to us, that we can know who you are, that we can know your holiness, your kindness, your mercy and grace, that you have so lavished upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ that you continue to do so by granting us your spirit. And we pray here because, again, we are in desperate need of your spirit to be with us in this time, to allow us to hear, and for him to work in us to grow fruits of faith in our hearts from the seed that would be implanted in us here. Grow us in faith, grow us in holiness, grow us in hope and in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we are in Advent season, as, as Daryl has said this morning, and Advent is a little different than Christmas. In fact, Advent is the lead up to Christmas then. And so during this time, you're not going to, as we're, we're going through Advent, you're not going to hear four Christmas sermons. If you want to cr- hear a Christmas sermon, come on Christmas Eve. What you're going to be hearing these next four weeks are, are sermons that will lead us up to that, that will prepare us. Advent is traditionally a time of longing and of waiting, of those times in darkness awaiting the light to come, which is the light of Christmas. And so we're going to be looking in this time of Advent, we're going to be looking at songs. Uh, We've come out of some psalms, but we're going to be uh, starting a new series here these next four weeks, essentially about Advent songs. A lot of of us in in this time period love songs, like there's so much with the Christmas season that has to do with music, Uh, that uh, the particular songs that we sing in this time that some of us all know and love dearly. Some of us love them so much we we sing them all year round. Um, I have words for you if you do. Uh, No. We should be celebrating the, the, the time of, of, of Christmas and, the, and, and hope and the birth of Jesus all year round. But there is a particular connection that we have in this time here. And so these, what we're going to be doing in these, these four weeks is looking at four of the songs in the Bible. There are many songs in the Bible, but we're going to be looking at four of them that are either, either directly, uh, directly tied to Advent to waiting in this longing, these themes, or they just touch on other themes here. And so today we're going to be looking in 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is the song of Hannah. Uh, And so it's always helpful for us, though, before we get into a song, to know the context of it. So many classic songs that we know and we love have a story behind them, don't they? And though we might really particularly enjoy a song, maybe for the, the music, for the, the lyrical turns. Knowing the background, though, to why it was written 
can really make it resonate with us then. Understanding the story brings out so much to the songwriter's lyrics. And the same is, is here with this song that we're going to look at today, Hannah's Song. It's a victory song, as we'll see on its own, but the depth and hope of it come alive when we know the story, and when we know the occasion behind it being written. Now, Hannah is a woman who had a life that, that it seemed like it was on paper fantastic. You can read about it. In, in fact, just if you have a, your Bible, you can skim over to uh, the chapter before 1 Samuel 1 where we get the context, the story of Hannah before she gets to this song here. She's married to a man named Elkanah. And from his description that we have there, it appears that he's someone of pretty considerable status. We learn that Elkanah has also, though, a rival wife to Hannah named Peninnah. And though Hannah has to share him in the family, she doesn't have to share his love because she's the favorite of the two wives. Whenever they go to the, the tabernacle to worship and to feast, Elkanah always gives Hannah a double portion of the feast that they have, a double portion of the sacrifice, because he loves her more than Peninnah. Things don't seem so bad there, but there's one, though, major problem with Hannah, and that she has borne no children to Elkanah, and she won't because she's barren. And that's a huge issue for her, in that, in that culture, particularly because having children and having lots of children was a sign of status. A person with numerous children was seen as being blessed by, um, and favored by God. And so what did that imply for Hannah then? Well, it seemed then in her mind that she was accursed or that she was forgotten by God. If God had closed her womb then in the eyes of this culture, there was something seriously wrong with Hannah. Perhaps she was cast aside by God. But it gets even worse because Peninnah, the rival wife, bore lots and lots of children to Elkanah. In fact, that's probably why he had two wives in the first place, because he recognized that Hannah wasn't going to give him any children. And so he took on Peninnah because she would bear him children. And even though Hannah was more loved by Elkanah, Peninnah always, though, had those children to flaunt before her. And Peninnah's very presence, then, was a reminder that Hannah was deficient because Peninnah had children. Boy, she let her know about it. You can imagine the barbs that she threw Hannah's way. Hannah was more loved. Who was more useful? On top of it all, her husband, though, Elkanah, just didn't seem to understand a lot of us have been on the receiving end of, of some cliche that's given to us in a time of, of deep hurt. And it doesn't help, does it? In fact, it just makes things worse. Elkanah tried to console her with these trite little sayings, but the tears just continue to flow down. And so this is Hannah. This is the author of this song. A woman who's not only barren and childless, she's also taunted by her rival. She has a misunderstanding husband, but also seems to be under the very curse of God himself if she's not forgotten altogether. A woman who has deep questions about her suffering. And this is where we see that the Bible is a book that's full of real people who are just like us, just like you and me. People who have the same fears, 
the same insecurities, the same struggles and issues that we do. And though there might be certain historical gaps and certain cultural gaps that we need to overcome, there's still, though, when we, when we do, we see that they're pretty much just the same. Generation after generation deals with the same root struggles and feelings just as we also do. And so there ought to be a certain solidarity, perhaps even a comfort then in that. Because the Bible isn't full of triumphant people that we may not be able to relate with, but it tells of people who fail and people who suffer. But the focus, though, is never just on the people who are enduring whatever it is that plagues them, but it always, though, to some degree reveals the God who stands over them. Sometimes he's behind the situation. Sometimes he's hidden in the background. But we can't only just focus on the sufferer without also seeing the God who continues, though, to remain present in the situation there, regardless of their perception in that, in that moment. And that's what we see here with the story of Hannah. All she can do is just pray to God and beg with tears for a son. And we discover, though, then, that the Lord answers her favorably by doing the improbable, by bringing life into this woman's lifeless and barren womb. She conceives and bears a son named Samuel by the power of God. And so Hannah sings this song of praise and victory. And now that we understand this woman a little better, we'll understand the context also of her singing and we'll understand the occasion for her song. And so this is God's word from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, Hannah's song. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the, Lord, of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. This is the word of God. Hannah sings a song of triumph, of, of gusto. She sings a victory song for what the Lord has done to her. It's a song of joy. Really, it's an appropriate response, isn't it, to what God has done for her. And so we're going to look at her song a little bit more here based on the context and as well as the words itself. 
And I want us to see two reasons in particular why it is that she sings. And the first is this. Hannah sings because God unfolds his salvation through a king. Hannah sings because God unfolds his salvation through a king. There is this this distinct air of of rejoicing and of praise that we see right away. Verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Yes, the Lord has given her a child out of this hopeless situation. But doesn't that seem a little excessive? It looks like she's equating Samuel, her son, with salvation. Is that okay? Infertility is a painful circumstance, but calling this her salvation, her exulting in the Lord's salvation, I mean, for one thing, what about countless others who have dealt with that or of other tragic situations? Has God not saved them? Salvation here is, isn't ultimately a relief of the tragedy or the sorrow in our lives. It's not necessarily the mending of our bodies or or our healings that we experience in life, perhaps right now. Because Hannah's praise goes actually beyond the blessing of a child. She doesn't praise him merely for Samuel, but for everything that his conception and his birth represented. Remember how she felt as she was barren and childless? It was a sense of being accursed by God. Of feeling the shame before others of the guilt for not being able to give her husband the blessing of a child. It was a constant taunting and humiliation before Peninnah. But when God opens her womb, though, and brings life into its deadness, it's a sign that this is over. Her reproach has been taken away. Her guilt and her shame is done away. Peninnah is no longer able to hold herself over Hannah because Hannah has a child. She hasn't been forgotten by God. Instead, she's been bestowed blessing and joy in her time of hopelessness. When God does this, he shows what he's capable of doing, of bringing life into lifeless places. He puts a seed of hope in a place where deadness seemed to reign. And that goes beyond creating life in the womb, but it also extends into the lifeless places and situations that humans just get themselves into. In one sense, Hannah, with her barren womb, was a microcosm or a picture of Israel at that time. The people of God, of which she was a part of and in which she lived. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this was the time of the judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And because of that, where anarchy ruled. And if you don't know some of the stories that went on in that, that time period, there's some of the, the worst and the most heinous and disgusting, depraved parts of the Bible. Stories of womanizing anti-heroes, stories of gang rape, stories of senseless genocide in civil war. And to make matters worse, this is even among God's people of promise. It's meant to be appalling. The Questions are intended to go beyond, well, how could God do any good in those situations? The bigger question when we read the book of Judges, the bigger question when we look at what's going on in the greater context of Hannah's society there is, how could God bring any hope and good out of these people? But that's what he does, though. 
Essentially, he says that if you think that bringing life into a dead womb is amazing, just wait. I'm going to bring life to a dead people. I'm going to take care of your reproach. I'm going to take care of your guilt, the taunts from your enemies. I'm going to bring life and restoration into your deepest parts. I'm going to give you a reason for hope when all you see is evil and depravity and despair. If you think that I've left you, if you you think that you are abandoned, if you think that you're a cursed people, guess what? I'm still here. See, Hannah's song reverberates, though, with this longing for salvation then to come to fruition. As she sings, she is anticipating what God will do in the social decay around her, that she will give them salvation through a king. Verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. She recognizes that the Lord is going to be faithful to his promise to rescue them. And somehow, from all of the darkness and the failures of her fellow Israelites, of her people there, he's going to do it by bringing a king into their midst and out of them also. And considering these people, I mean, that's a a minor miracle in itself. It's like bringing life into a dead place there. It will be hope growing out of this dead people. That's the grace of God at work. It's the mercy of God here and his commitment then to lovingly redeem them. He is going to relentlessly pursue them. He will stop at nothing then to make them his. He wants a people who are his, a people who will love him wholeheartedly, who will love their neighbors just as they love him. And God loves them enough then to tame their hearts and to put life into their dead souls so that they'll be able to, so that he will turn them into a living people. And that hope is going to go beyond Hannah here. This is a hope that's far beyond just this child, Samuel, given to her. It's a hope for, for, for the nation there. And so as she sings her song of victory, she ties it then to the, the victory and the exaltation that the king will have. Again, verse 10, the Lord will exalt the horn of his anointed. Well, back to verse 1 as she begins. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Her heart exalts in the Lord because the king is victorious. She rejoices because the king has been given strength. Her reproach and her shame is taken away because the king is exalted and her with him. She faces her enemies and oppressors, those who have been throwing taunts, those who have been deriding her because the, the Lord has thundered against him by his king. And somehow then, too, in some way, as Hannah sings this song which looks forward to a king, she realizes here that the child that's birthed from her womb would be involved in the Lord's plan to redeem his people from the chaos. I don't know how she knew that. Perhaps because this was a miraculous intervention, maybe that was it. But it seems to be, though, on her lips. And I also, though, don't think that she knew exactly how her son Samuel would be involved in this. But clearly, though, God wasn't absent from his people, just as he wasn't absent from Hannah. And as Hannah's reproach was lifted from her by this son, so also would he figure into the reproach of his people then being taken away. See, this song extends far beyond just simply Hannah. 
And it's also here for her fellow Israelites. The salvation that Hannah experiences is for them as well, as lost as they were. See, her son Samuel, if you know more of the story, would herald the coming of the king that they needed. The Lord used Samuel then to anoint David as their king to unify the people that would then bring them glory and exaltation like they had never known before. But the story continues. Fast forward, though, into the New Testament. And we encounter another barren woman. A barren woman named Elizabeth. And God visits her, then, to bring life into her infertile womb. She brings a son named John the Baptist. And John, like Samuel the prophet before him, would herald the coming of God's Messiah. The king that they needed. Jesus. So that when John is standing on the banks of the Jordan River and here comes Jesus, here comes the king, and he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the king who Hannah was looking ahead to. Though the picture from her vantage point was a little bit fuzzy. She was looking from a distance. She couldn't make out quite everything about him, but she could see enough. She could tell that that he would take away her reproach and shame and guilt By his victory. But if she had been able to stand a little bit closer, then she'd have seen how he would do that. As a king who would actually take all of that upon himself. A king who would deliver her from her sense of being accursed by God. Because he then would hang a curse on a cross in her place. And yet then, this was his victory over our shame. Over our enemies who seek to to heap scorn and condemnation upon us. Enemies who, haunt, who taunt us because of our insufficiencies that we have. Who remind us that we don't measure up. That we're imperfect people. Who feed us lies even that we're abandoned in times. Those enemies could be earthly opponents. They could be spiritual powers. They could even though be our very own minds. See, in Jesus Christ, so in this king, reproach is gone. Victory is given to his people even now as Jesus is the exalted king who sits at the right hand of God the Father. Friends, this morning, if you're feeling hopeless, but if you're in Christ, that's the very opposite that's true. Even this morning here. Verse 8 says, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. You can look at yourself, maybe perhaps covered in dust from lying on the ground and and, and lying in the dirt. Maybe you've got the ashes of sadness and gloom which are, are covering you. Friends, if you're in Jesus Christ, you cannot look at only the dust and ashes that are around you and in which you sit. Because Jesus' word here begs you to look upwards to him. Because there, seated next to him on his throne, is you there too. And so the second reason, though, why Hannah sings is that Hannah sings because God works on a different economy. Hannah sings because God works on a different economy. One of the main themes in her song here that we see is reversal, particularly in this upside-down shape that he works in verses 4 through 8, where he takes these unexpected situations and he turns them up on his head then to lift up his people in turn. 
He removes the strength from the strong. He takes away satisfaction from the full on and on here. Anything that we might use as a means to measure our own significance, he removes. But it's those then who are weak. It's those who, are, who have nothing. Those who are reduced to the ash heap and the dust. Those who are unexpected, he lifts them up. He turns the normal flow on reverse so that the weak are the ones who are victorious. The hungry are the ones who become full. The barren are the ones who birth giant families. This goes against the the expected order of things. No one expects these things to happen. It's not how things work. It's the strong who win, right? Verse 8 For the pillars of the the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. If God has set the very foundations of our existence, then can't he do what he like? He's not bound to work in the ways that we are accustomed to in this world because he stands over it, and he's free to do as he sees fit. We're not mercilessly held to the way that things are in this world because God isn't bound to the typical status quo that we see. And that's not only a comfort to to those who are sitting in the dirt. That's also a word of caution to those who sit in high places. Because it tells you that you're not actually as strong as you might think that you are. And for as much strength as you think you have, it can be actually taken away. But that's also a word, though, for, for the lowly. Because it's not just the strong who are prone to this, but it's also the, the weak who are prone to, tr- to trusting in strength. Oh, if I only had strength, if I could only get strong, then I'd be set. But we're not to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Because when God works, he doesn't use us in our own strength or abilities. God reverses the logical thinking here that we want to rely upon. And Hannah experienced this firsthand. Hannah had nothing. There was nothing in her that could will life into her womb. And sometimes it takes us being in a lowly situation when we really come face to face with our poverty. Our our crutches get yanked out from from under our arms. And we realize just how weak and unable we are. We thought that maybe our ankles were a little bit stronger but instead we crumple to the ground. But it's in those times, though, it's often where God comes to meet us in the best times there, where God best comes to meet us and offers us his open hand. Because maybe we need to realize just how impoverished we are before we would ever take hold of his mercy. We don't have to grasp at straws trying to be strong before God, because what's better And what he really delights in is when we come in reliance and in honest recognition of our own weaknesses. Have you ever considered that? That God's actually more pleased when we come to him in our inabilities instead of trying to be strong? Because we're not not fooling him anyways. But rather, he delights much more when we come having to rely upon him because that's exactly where we need to be. It's usually when we're feeling that way that we actually will come to him. And we come to him, though, with our, in, in an honesty, with our souls open and bared, begging for him to lift us up. And that might be an easy concept to affirm. But there are 
But it's a lot harder, though, for us to come to grips with that in the moment. But it's freeing because it doesn't rely upon your strength. God is pleased to work in his reversed economy. He's pleased to show us our weaknesses, to lift up us up from our poverty, and to seat us in glorious places. And that's something that I have personally had to, to wrestle with and really rec- come to a reckoning with this week. How many people know this? I'm not, pretty, I'm not very open with it here, but over the past couple years, I've actually dealt with some fairly significant anxiety. And I'm not talking about anxiety in the sense of oh, I'm, I'm anxious and nervous when I go into a situation, when I go into to meet new people into a new place. No, this is an anxiety that it's actually like a spring that is coiled up tight and deep inside or is, almost has this feeling of, of heat and it's debilitating usually. You get so worked up that all you can do is just sit there and stew and not do anything. Some of you might have experienced this and some of you might know what I'm talking about. And they come and go at times, but this past Sunday, this last week, admittedly, was a time where before the church service here, it hit hard. Uh, you know, I've had it happen before on Sundays, but I've never actually had it happen to that degree. I woke up in the morning starting to feel it come on and starting to feel this tension inside. But, oh, no, it's coming. It slowly started to ebb, but it wasn't until I got here when, when things, when I was preparing to actually kick off the service here that it really began to, to hit and really began to grip. And it was, that, again, that same debilitating tension that I feel. And it was so bad. It laid me so low. Uh, there's this aspect here. I don't know if, if you know what I'm talking about here, but there are some times that are, there are times where it's, it's, it's absolutely humiliating. And perhaps times are, it's, it's, it's humiliating to this, to this degree that, that others can't always understand, though, when you are confronted with your own weaknesses, even if no one knows. And it was this moment there where I, I, I just feeling so, so unable and I just like, wanted to give up because God can't use anxious pastors. God can't use pastors who are insecure. God can't use pastors who are dealing with this sort of tension inside and just can't, are sitting here with it. What am I even doing called as a pastor? What am I doing here? And then you start to, I start to feel guilty. I start to have this sense of, well, I... I I feel guilty because I'm not, I'm not being a good enough pastor to these people because I just want to sit and, and, and hide myself away in a hole. The subsequent things that continue to go through your mind, the, the despair that sets in. And the rest of Sunday was awful. I could not shake that. And Monday morning waking up, that wasn't any, any, a whole lot better. I was feeling a little bit better, but I come in here Monday morning and sit at my office and I think, what do I have to do? I'm wrestling with my insecurities, my anxieties as a pastor, my own weaknesses. And what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to preach on Sunday morning now. I'm supposed to sit down here and study. What am I going to do? But though, I want you to know, as I opened this passage up, and I, I began to read and meditate and pray on these truths about how God actually takes what's weak, that 
takes us in our own weaknesses, our insufficiencies, or even our debilitating moments, and he actually uses that. I cannot tell you how freeing that was. Because there is, this is the God, God's reverse economy at work right here. I still, I, I have my anxieties still. I hate my anxieties. I have my insecurities. But you know what? It doesn't matter because God is still pleased with me because even though I feel like I'm sitting here in the dust and in the ash heap, you know what? Jesus Christ is my king. And he is the one who is still actually sitting on his throne. And you know what? Even though I'm covered in dust, even if I feel horrible and in despair and if I feel guilty, I am still seated with him, whether I recognize it or not. And praise God that he uses those times of our weaknesses and our insecurities to, to just remind us again of how much he loves and cares for us and how much he will work through us nonetheless. All I get to, I get to do is just press into God in those times. I don't need to be strong. I get the privilege of actually coming to him then. And he comes to me in my depths, and he meets me where I am. And you know what? If you're in Jesus, he does the same thing with you too. I don't say a single bit of this here, other than for all of us to know how, how it is that in those times when we are weakest, God most delights in coming to us. And sometimes he even preps us for that. For as difficult as recognizing our inadequacies are, those are the times when we're most receptive to him. And we're most able to see his open, benevolent hand to us and tells him or tells us to just take it and rest in that. In fact, would we even really pray if it wasn't for that? It's a sort of reverse economy of God's salvation here is best seen through the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross, the way that Jesus took as he marched to the cross there. And in 1 Corinthians 1, it talks about this when it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If, we're ever, if we are trying to hang on to our own strength of, of cleverness, we're not actually trying, or we're not actually following the path of Jesus. We're not going the way of the cross. He could have come in great fanfare and, and power, but no, he didn't. He came to the lowly, and he came as being lowly and as a servant. His victory came through his suffering, and his exaltation came only after he went through the cross. So how could we expect anything different? But as God uses us in our weaknesses, though, he turns the world upside down. And it's God's reversed economy that therefore drives us to faith. And verse 9 hammers that home for us when it says, For not by might shall a man prevail. If that's, if that's not clear enough for us there, there's the constant refrain in this song of, your salvation, your salvation that Hannah sings. She doesn't exult in herself or her strength. She exults in what God has done for her in her time of lowliness. It's not my strength. And God works in reverse ways. And so that means then that we can be weak and we can be open with our inability because that is what drives us outside of ourselves. That's what drives us to look to him in faith. That when we are unable we can still look to him and trust him to work despite our own inabilities. 
And that's why Hannah is able to exult in the Lord. She presses into him in faith in verse 2 when she says, There is no rock like our God. The idea here isn't just of of a rock, of of a large rock, but it's rather the cleft that's within a large rock or a cliffside. The cleft is that opening in which you can hide when the storms rage and assail against you, when that wind whips. There's no assurance here that we have that those storms won't come. But what is certain, though, in that is that he will be a sheltering cleft in those times. The wind might be deafening. The rains might be a constant barrage. But the answer isn't for us to leap out of the cliff. It's to press further and further into the cleft of that rock and make it our shelter. Our strength in weakness, our strength in our inabilities isn't our own. It's that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we press into his strength in those times when we most need refuge. And he might not make us strong, He might not strengthen us. More often, when we press into him, we're leaning into him because we have no strength. He doesn't promise to make us strong, but what he does do, what he does promise is so much better. He promises to bear us up in our weaknesses, to lift us up and carry us along when we're unable. As we consider Advent, this is a season of waiting for hope. This isn't a Christmas time here. This isn't the light of Christmas, but this is waiting for light to dawn, that light of Christmas, the light of our Savior Jesus coming into this world being born. This is the time leading up to that. It's of longing. It's of expectation. So as we wait, as we long here, I want to ask you a question. Is Hannah's hope from her song realistic for real people? Is it realistic for you? Her hope wasn't just for herself, though. Her hope and her salvation had laid the groundwork for her people's salvation. And those people there, God's people, go far beyond just Old Testament Israel here. It goes out to all who trust in Jesus, who seek him in strength, who are in Christ. It goes out to real people, Real people just like you and me. It goes to us. People who suffer all sorts of things. People who, are, who have questions about who God is in their times of suffering or when they look at the world, when they look at other people's suffering. It's for people, real people, who struggle to believe where God is in the middle of these times, of whether or not he really is trustworthy. But even in those moments, though, Even in our moments of sorrow, of struggle, of longing, the King Jesus here is exalted. And so are you with him then. So is Hannah's hope from her song realistic for real people? The question has to begin with God, not with Hannah and not with us. Who is God in this song? And who is the God of Advent? It's one who put life in a lifeless womb. And if he can do that, then he can work life and hope to us also. And in what seem to be hopeless situations. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you.
that even though we are weak, you are strong. We thank you that you have lifted us from the ash heap because Jesus, our King, is victorious. And even right now, as he is seated on high at your right hand, so are we. And Lord, it's difficult sometimes to understand that. When everything else around us that we see or perhaps experience wants to tell us otherwise. But we pray that you would lift us up and that your spirit would lift our eyes, Father, to your son who is seated at your right hand. And that from there we would long for him, that we would know that we are already with him, but we would long for his return, for all of, of, of that to be made right. Strengthen us until that day. Thank you that you have given us this meal here, the table that we come to week after week, and that you would strengthen us again with those promises. Prepare us as we come in Jesus' name. Amen.